It is time for Patreon birthday shoutouts, and I want to first say happy belated birthday to Claudia from June. For July, we have a long list. I want to say a very happy birthday to Alistair, Ashley, Kara, Sindra, Christina, Daniel, Dina, Emily, Janet, Jesse, Kelly, Layla, Lena, Lisa, Megan, Nassim, Pascal, Pratik, Ray, Sarah, and Shay. Thank you so much for supporting Crime Lines over on Patreon, and I want to say a very happy birth month. Ronrico and Ashley Schutz were newlyweds, but the honeymoon was quickly over. After arguing all day after 10 months of marriage, Ashley got into her car to leave. What happened next was believed to be an accident, but then Ronrico's mother came forward with a new story. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. This case this week is one that I thought was interesting from the investigation standpoint, but also some legal issues. Maybe I just watched too much of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial because as soon as they saw that hearsay was going to be a major issue here, I thought we should cover it. And I want to thank Nate for suggesting this case. There are not a lot of sources for this episode. This case was not widely reported on, and the major coverage. It got was on the TV show Deadly Women, which is known for the creative license they take in storytelling. While they get the broad strokes correct, a lot of the details are dramatized for effect. If not for legal documents posted online, I would have maybe 10 minutes of information. The few articles I could find were from cleveland.com, and all sources are linked in the show notes. But before we jump in, I want to remind everyone that I will be at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Dallas next month. The link is in the show notes, and there are still tickets available. I will be presenting a case for roundtable discussion, as well as likely moderating a panel of podcasters. I basically volunteered to do everything, and they said, okay. So there are tons of podcasters coming. I'm going to be doing multiple things. I will be at a table for meet and greets, that sort of thing, and it's a great chance to meet podcasters and other listeners. I will also be participating in the Generation Y 10th Anniversary Live Show on September 8th here in Kansas City. It will be in person and streamed, so you can join it virtually as well. I will leave a link for more information to that in the show notes and also pay attention to my social media and Generation Y social media for the announcement of ticket sales. It is going to be a great show, so definitely check it out. And I believe those will be my only events for the rest of the year. I know I had said I was going to the Northeast for something, but we ended up having to cancel that when airfare spiked and then flights were being canceled left and right. We decided we were going to postpone that trip until... You know, the economy stabilized a bit. No word on when that will be happening. So thankfully, the Generation Y live show is just across town from where I live, so I can easily drive myself there. So, okay, with that, let's get on to the case. Ashley Phelps and Ronrico Schutz both grew up in Ohio in the Cleveland area. 
When they met, they each had a couple of children, so they blended this into one big family. They were both very involved and dedicated parents, and they quickly fell in love with each other. Ashley even stood by Ronrico after he was arrested for assault and burglary and ended up spending just about half of 2013 and most of 2014 locked up. Ashley visited him, and they made plans to be together when he was released. And that's exactly what they did. In July 2015, they married, having a beautiful wedding, and a few months after that, Ashley gave birth to their daughter. Though they had been together for a while, because Ronrico had spent so much of that time locked up, this was their first time to really be living together and blending their families, so they were still new at striking that balance. They lived in a home that Ronrico's mother Charlotte owned, with some of their kids living there full-time and others part-time with shared custody or visitation schedules. Ashley worked as a manager at a local store, which was going well as she was a dedicated employee and a hard worker. Ronrico was staying home with their infant daughter and their other young children at the time. It's not clear if having a stay-at-home dad was what they necessarily wanted. For one thing, it's hard to get a job after a felony conviction in the United States, let alone a recent conviction. And the jobs you do get often don't pay very much and would barely cover the costs of daycare for an infant and after-school care for the older ones. So it is possible they really didn't have any other option. But that doesn't mean the family couldn't have used that second income. With one working parent and several children between them, there were financial stressors that kept compounding. Ten months into their marriage, and the couple was fighting frequently. May 28, 2016 was one of those days where they spent more time fighting than anything else. Ronrico called his mother, Charlotte, and asked her to come over around 1 p.m. because the two were arguing. Ashley was threatening to leave with the baby, and he just wanted Charlotte to come and intervene and help calm everything down. Charlotte went over there, and the arguing did continue for a bit, but it eventually settled. There were other people over, including Ronrico's friends, one of his nephews, and Charlotte ended up staying for six or seven hours with the family. After Charlotte headed back home, around 10 or 11 at night, she did call Ashley just to check in. Ashley told her that everything was fine. But that did not last long. Ronrico called Charlotte back about 30 minutes after that phone call, And according to Charlotte, Ronrico sounded hysterical. She could hear Ashley also yelling in the background, and to Charlotte, it sounded like Ashley was trying to start a physical fight with Ronrico. Ronrico said Ashley was acting crazy. Because of this, Ronrico wanted to get the kids out of the house and bring them to stay at Charlotte's for the night. One of the kids in the house was Ronrico's nephew, who I believe lived with Charlotte at the time. There was also an eight-year-old there and, of course, the baby. Charlotte told him that it was totally fine for him and the kids to come to her house. After waiting about 20 to 30 minutes for Ronrico to arrive, Charlotte's phone rang. It was a neighbor of Ronrico and Ashley's telling Charlotte that there had been an accident, 
and she needed to come to the house immediately. This neighbor had gone over to the house after hearing a child yelling, You're going to kill my dad. She then saw Ronrico lying in the driveway with blood around him. He was awake, though, and gave her Charlotte's number so she could come and get the kids. Lying there in that driveway, severely injured, Ronrico's first concern was for the children. Charlotte headed straight to the house, and as she arrived, an ambulance was leaving the home with Ronrico in the back. He was alive, but gravely injured. Ashley and Charlotte drove to the hospital together, and in the car, Ashley told her what happened. She said that after Ronrico had hung up with Charlotte, the argument continued, and Ashley decided she was going to leave and stay at her aunt's house. Her aunt, however, wasn't home when she got there, so Ashley decided to go back to her own house. She told Charlotte as she drove back to the house, she had a feeling something was wrong. When she pulled up, she saw Ronrico lying in the driveway, injured, and a neighbor had called 911. Ashley told Charlotte that she didn't know what happened, but that's not exactly what she told the police. It was a little before midnight when the police were dispatched to the call of a man hit by a vehicle in his driveway. When they got to the house, the paramedics and firefighters were already on the scene and stabilizing Ronrico for transport. Also present were neighbors, children, and Ashley. Officer Ryan Corrigan spoke with Ashley, and he had his body camera on, so we know what she told the police when they arrived. Ashley said that she and Ronrico had been fighting, and she got into her Chevy Tahoe, which, for those who don't know, is a full-size SUV. Ashley was backing out of the driveway when Ronrico ran up behind the vehicle to stop her from leaving. She said she did not see him, and she hit him with the vehicle. She had left the scene, but she did come back. This story was confirmed by Ronrico himself, who was conscious. As he was transported from the scene to the hospital, he told the EMS tech that he had been drinking that night and he was behind the SUV when he was hit. He ended up being stuck under the vehicle and dragged 12 feet down the driveway while Ashley was seemingly unaware. So we have Ashley and Ronrico telling more or less the same story that this was an accident. But there were two witnesses who said that wasn't what happened, and those witnesses were two of the children in the house. Both of the children, who were described as hysterical by police officers, said that Ronrico was in front of the vehicle when he was run over. Seeing as this happened in a driveway while the vehicle was facing the garage, Ashley would have had no reason to put the vehicle in drive unless the point was to hit Ronrico. The children were saying that this happened on purpose, and when Ashley offered to drive them back to Charlotte's house, they were heard on the body cam recording refusing to get into a car with her. There was some evidence at the scene that did make the officers pause for a moment. The back of the SUV had no damage, but the front bumper did, 
An EMS tech described it as a round indentation. The officers noted the damage, but they also saw what looked like fresh handprints on the back of the SUV. While they couldn't say they were from Ronrico, you can imagine that if he was behind the vehicle and Ashley was backing up, he would have put his hands up. They theorized that the damage to the front bumper could have been caused as the car passed over Ronrico as Ashley backed over him. In the end, they took the word of both Ashley and Ronrico, who was the victim here. Both of the responding officers and the paramedics who responded wrote in their reports that Ronrico Schutz was struck by a car going in reverse, and it was ruled an accident. Ronrico was transported to the hospital where he was in the ICU. He was paralyzed from the neck down, in addition to several other injuries. His mother, Charlotte, was allowed to see him in those overnight hours while Ashley waited outside the room. Ronrico told Charlotte that there had been an argument, but he was in front of the SUV when Ashley hit him. She then backed up and then drove forward again. In Charlotte's words, Ronrico said she came full throttle at him. This time, he ended up getting trapped under the vehicle and was dragged down the driveway to where he was found. Ronrico said he didn't want Ashley to get in trouble, and that's why he lied to the police saying that it was an accident, and he intended to continue lying to protect her. He asked Charlotte not to say anything to anyone, and when he told pretty much the same story to another family member, he also begged that person not to say anything either. Charlotte remained pretty solidly camped out at the hospital while Ronrico was in the ICU, and her 10-year-old grandson, who was Ronrico's nephew, came up to the hospital to talk to her. We are going to call him Mark. That is not his name. His name is protected by the courts, as he was a child witness. Mark was the nephew who had been at Ronrico and Ashley's house on the night of the incident, playing with his cousin. He told Charlotte that Ronrico was hanging out and drinking with some friends, but after they left, Ashley and Ronrico started arguing again. Mark said Ashley left the house at some point. While she was gone, Ronrico showered and was just hanging out, playing on his phone when Ashley came back. Mark said Ashley threw some money at him, said she was taking the baby, and then told Ronrico he would never see her again. They continued arguing, and this is when Ronrico called Charlotte, telling her that he was bringing the kids to her house. Ashley then went outside. Ronrico told Mark that he was going to bring him home, and then Ronrico walked out the back door that led to the driveway, and Mark heard a car start. Mark looked out the dining room window, which faced the driveway, and said that he saw Ronrico standing in front of the SUV. Ronrico yelled at Ashley to get out of the car. Mark said Ashley then drove forward, which knocked Ronrico over. As he tried to get back up, Ashley backed the vehicle up and then pulled forward again, hitting Ronrico. 
To Mark, it looked like Ronrico's shorts had gotten stuck on the bumper, so when Ashley backed down the driveway, she dragged Ronrico as he screamed. Ronrico was freed from the vehicle towards the end of the driveway, and then Ashley drove off. Mark and his cousin ran out to Ronrico and started yelling for help. A neighbor heard them and called 911. Mark said that while they were standing there, Ashley pulled up to the house. She got out of the SUV and ran over to Ronrico. Mark said that to Ronrico, Ashley said, I told you, Ronrico, and then yelled for everyone else to hear who did this. After the police arrived, Ashley offered to drive Mark home, and he is one of the children who refused to get in the car with her because of what he had seen. Charlotte didn't want to believe that Ashley had done this on purpose, but here she had both Ronrico and Mark telling her that's what happened. The police still believed this was unintentional based on the information they had at the time, though in fairness, that information may have been limited due to their limited investigation, which we will get into later. Charlotte wrestled with what to do. Her son told her not to say anything, and I'm sure as a mom, she wouldn't have wanted to add any stress that would get in the way of his recovery from his injuries, whatever that recovery looked like. Ronrico was already facing lifelong disabilities from this if he did survive, and obviously the family wanted to focus on getting Ronrico as better as he could get. But on the other hand, Charlotte believed her son had been intentionally severely injured by his wife, and she just couldn't let it go. Eleven days after the incident, with Ronrico still in the ICU and the prognosis not looking good, she called the police. Charlotte then had to call a couple more times over the next two days to get someone to tell her what was going on with the investigation. While still waiting to hear back from the investigators, on June 10th, 2016, Ronrico Schutz died of multiple organ failure at the age of 35. That same day, Charlotte called the police again and demanded to know where they were on the investigation now that Ron Rico was dead. This was surely a homicide investigation. Charlotte eventually had to complain to a higher up to get things moving. And I do want to take a second to point something out about Charlotte. She had already lost her husband back in 1999 at the age of 40. About six years later, her 15-year-old son died. And now she's lost another son. Just getting out of bed in the morning had to have been hard. And here she was having to fight for the police just to take her statement. But if she didn't do it, Ronrico's case would still be listed as an accident. Thanks to Charlotte's pushing, a detective named Richard Cerny, who was a certified accident reconstructionist, was assigned to the case. 
After he got the reports from the incident, he called Charlotte to speak with her. It was about two and a half weeks after Ronrico's death that they spoke. Charlotte told the detective what Ronrico had said in the hospital and also what Mark had told her happened. Detective Cerny also spoke with Mark soon after this, and Mark told him what he had told his grandmother, that Ronrico wasn't hit once but twice and was then dragged down the driveway. Detective Cerny went out to the scene to take photos of the house, the driveway, the garage. The scene had not been entirely cleaned up at that point, so there were still some traces of hair and skin and blood on the driveway so that he could tell where Ronrico was hit and where he had been dragged to. Cerny also watched the body cam footage from the responding officers, and he saw that there were some inconsistencies with Ashley's story. He noticed that lack of damage to the back of the vehicle and even heard the EMS tech pointed out to the officers, and he could see the damage to the front. The responding officers assumed that the damage to the front was from the car passing over Ronrico, which Cerny, who was certified in these types of crime scenes, believed that was unlikely, if not impossible. Ronrico was a large man. He was six foot two and 325 pounds. So not only would he have left some damage to the back of the vehicle as he was knocked down, the SUV would not have been able to pass over him freely to then cause damage to the front. Cerny also noted the position Ronrico was found in. Due to the extent of Ronrico's injuries, he could not have moved himself after being dragged by the vehicle. How he was lying was how he fell. Ronrico was found with his head towards the garage and his feet pointing towards the street. So let's think about it. If Ronrico was hit from an SUV reversing over him, he would be knocked so his head would be towards the street. If he was hit from the vehicle pulling forward, he would be knocked down with his head towards the garage. Even being dragged in this scenario, Ronrico would not have spun fully around. Since his head was towards the garage and his feet were towards the street, it looked like Mark's witness statement was correct. Charlotte told Detective Cerny that the house actually had security cameras. One camera covered the backyard and would have caught what happened because it also covered the garage and driveway. Ashley had even told Charlotte that the recording would show that she didn't do anything wrong. But the issue was no one could get these recordings and Ashley did not produce them voluntarily. Charlotte had tried to get them. She called the company but she was told she needed an access code to get the footage from the company's hard drive, where they stored it for 30 days. It was 13 days from the incident to Ronrico's death, and then another two and a half weeks before the detective spoke with Charlotte and learned about the cameras. By the time the police considered pulling the footage, it may have already been deleted and I say may have been deleted because they didn't actually try, so we don't know. 
There may have been a few days in there where they could have gotten the recordings. They could have contacted the company, and if the company knew a subpoena may be coming, they possibly would have held on to the footage longer than 30 days. But the police appear to have taken that 30-day time limit as gospel and assumed it was lost and didn't even try to get it. Now, these cameras are an interesting unknown in this case. They had been taken down from the house at some point after the incident, and it also seems the footage may have been erased. We do know the cameras were up on the day of the incident, May 28th. Ashley's 16-year-old, who we will call James, was not there on that day, but he did have the app to view the security cameras on his phone. Ronrico had previously had him download it and showed him how to use it. He said that on the day of the 28th, though he wasn't at the house, he did check the backyard camera on the app and he saw people hanging out in the backyard. He said he saw the Tahoe parked in the driveway. On the morning of the 29th, after hearing what happened to his stepfather, James checked the app because Ronrico had told him that he could see past recordings on it. James thought he would be able to see what happened, but when he checked, he said the footage wasn't there. But even without the recordings, they did have the eyewitness statements, which turned this case into a homicide investigation. And then they found, in checking Ashley's criminal record, that she had previously committed a similar crime. In May 2005, Ashley was arrested and charged with felonious assault, assault, and domestic violence after she rammed her car into her ex-partner's car. This was not a minor tap. The victim, who was the father of her son, suffered cuts, bruises, a broken nose, and leg injuries in this collision. Ashley ended up taking a plea deal where the felonious assault charge was dismissed, and she pleaded guilty just to the two misdemeanor charges. She was given a fairly light consequence here, a one-month suspended jail sentence, a restraining order, and around $200 in court costs. I don't always find 10-year-old charges terribly relevant to a current crime, but this one seems a little on the nose. She committed domestic violence using her car, and that makes it seem a little bit more relevant than most old charges would be. Based on what the police had at this point, which was Mark's witness statement, the statement Ron Rico made to his mother in the hospital, and the evidence at the scene, a warrant was issued for Ashley's arrest in late July, two months after the incident. Ashley turned herself in voluntarily in early August. She was charged with murder under four different categories in Ohio law. First, aggravated murder, with the aggravating factor being premeditation. Then she was charged with murder in violation of RC 2903.02b, meaning that she caused the death of another while committing a different violent felony. Third, murder in violation of 
RC-2903.02A, meaning she intentionally caused Ron Rico's death, and four, vehicular homicide. And in Ohio, vehicular homicide means the person caused a death while failing to use reasonable care while driving a vehicle. Ashley was also charged with two counts of felonious assault and tampering with evidence. That tampering with evidence charge was related to getting rid of the cameras and the footage. Ashley pleaded not guilty, and her defense team tried to get Ron Rico's statement thrown out as hearsay. The state argued that this statement fell under an exception to the hearsay rule, which we will get into in a little bit more detail later. The judge agreed with the state, and it was allowed in at trial. The state's theory of the crime was that Ashley intentionally ran Ronrico over in a rage as their marriage was crumbling. The defense said that this was an accident, which was the same thing the police and the EMS at the scene said it was. Their strategy consisted largely of discrediting witnesses and calling into question the integrity of the investigation. Starting with Mark, the 10-year-old who witnessed this awful scene, they pointed out that his story had changed. He first told the police that Ronrico was hit twice and then dragged, which is the same story he told at trial. But he hadn't told the prosecutor that Ronrico had been hit twice until right before trial. And in between these two statements, Mark had also written a letter to the trial judge stating that Ashley had, in fact, hit Ron Rico while backing out of the driveway and dragged him. To further call into question Mark's statement, his father, LaShawn, testified. LaShawn was Ron Rico's brother and was in prison at the time of Ron Rico's death. But he had been told what happened by family members. When he found out that his son witnessed it, he called Mark and Mark told him what he saw. But then on cross-examination, LaShawn admitted that he told his daughter on the phone that Mark was, quote, playing at being traumatized by the incident. He called Mark a good actor who had lied and had Charlotte and everyone else fooled. I think it's safe to say whatever Mark saw that night, whether it was a careless collision or a purposeful one, seeing his uncle get run over would have been traumatizing, and he was very unlikely to be lying about that. As for Charlotte's statement, the defense tried to show her as a grieving mother who had a motive to lie and had an inconsistent story as well. The detective who took over the case had written in a report that Mark didn't tell Charlotte about what he saw until after Ronrico's death, nearly two weeks after the incident. But Charlotte testified that he had actually told her before Ronrico died, in fact, just the day after he was run over. This is a pretty big discrepancy when you figure Mark's statement was part of what Charlotte said pushed her to contact the police. So if she called the police before Mark made the statement, that is an issue with her timeline. But if you've consumed true crime through books, podcasts, documentaries for a while, you know that police reports have mistakes on them, especially ones like this, when they're relying on their memory of an interview and it's not a recording. It's possible the detective simply misunderstood what Charlotte said, and when she said Mark told her what he saw after the incident, 
The detective may have interpreted that as after the death. But there were some other things in Charlotte's story that just straight up were not accurate. She testified that she saw the garage door open that night, but the police body cam footage confirmed that the door was closed. She testified that Ronrico said Ashley came full throttle at him when he was in front of the vehicle, but due to the distance of where the impact happened and the garage, she couldn't have done that without also hitting the garage door, which had no damage to it. The defense then pointed out the things not done in this investigation, like the lack of a full reconstruction, a delay in looking over the car, not getting the camera footage that would have shown what happened. To the defense, the reasonable doubt in this case was in all the things the police could have pursued but didn't, and those things would have proven that this was unintentional. In the end, the jury determined that what happened was not an accident, but the state had also not proven that it was intentional or premeditated. They found Ashley not guilty of aggravated murder, the intentional murder charge, and the tampering with evidence charge, but they did find her guilty of the murder charge defined as causing death while committing a violent felony as well as vehicular homicide and felonious assault. Because the verdicts of these were essentially different charges for the same crime, they were merged together for the purposes of sentencing. She was only sentenced on the most severe crime convicted on, which was the murder count. Ashley was then sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after 15 years. After the conviction, the jury went a step further to write a letter to the Cleveland police. The judge ordered the letter to be put under seal, but Cleveland.com learned about the contents of that letter from a juror. The letter was three pages long, and it blasted the investigation, particularly the responding officers. It said their behavior was inadequate and a disservice to the citizens of Cleveland. The jury said that from what they saw on that body cam footage, the responding officers acted in a, quote, flippant, indifferent manner, end quote, and that they didn't take enough witness statements. They also criticized the detective Richard Cerny for not doing enough, like not trying to get the security footage from the house or doing the full scene reconstruction. They recognized in the letter that the police do have a difficult job, and that their duty is to protect and serve. Yet, when it came to Ron Rico Schutz's murder, all they did was respond and record. But the jury wanted it to be clear that their criticisms of the investigation did not undermine their confidence in their verdict. There had been an internal investigation into the actions of both of these responding officers, and reports like that, as far as I can tell, are not public, and both officers remained employed. This case came down to Ronrico's mother, Charlotte. Had she not come forward with what her son had told her, this would have been written off as an accident, even though there was evidence to the contrary. And it would be the statement Charlotte came forward with, actually, that was the strongest claim on Ashley Schutz's appeal. She said the trial judge erred in allowing it in because it was hearsay. 
So let's start by talking about what hearsay is. If you follow trials, particularly ones that have light physical evidence and mostly witness evidence, you're probably used to hearing this as an objection. Hearsay is any out-of-court statement that is being offered to prove the truth of what it says. Hearsay isn't as simple as someone told me this. It's someone told me this and it proves that. And it doesn't even have to be something someone else said. You can actually provide hearsay evidence of something you yourself said if you're presenting that out-of-court statement as proof of something. In this case, the hearsay is pretty obvious. Charlotte testified that Ronrico said Ashley hit him intentionally. That's hearsay. It was an out-of-court statement offered to prove this murder charge, and Ronrico wasn't there to be cross-examined about it. The reason the state was allowed to use it at trial wasn't because it wasn't hearsay, but rather because the trial judge ruled that it fell into one of Ohio's exceptions for hearsay. Ohio, like every jurisdiction, has a number of exceptions to the hearsay rule, and one is called excited utterance. That is defined as, quote, a statement relating to a startling event or condition made while the declarant was under the stress of excitement caused by the event or condition, end quote. The reason excited utterances are admissible is because of the startling nature of whatever the event was. It made the statement more of a reaction. The person didn't have time to stop, reflect, consider the entirety of the situation, and then make a decision on what to say. Therefore, it's believed to be less likely to be fabricated. This exception does have four elements. All four must be satisfied for the statement to be admissible. First, the event had to be startling. Being hit by an SUV and paralyzed would certainly fit. Two, the statement had to be in relation to the event, and Ronrico was telling his mother what happened, so that fits. Three, it had to be made by someone with firsthand knowledge of the event. Obviously, Ronrico qualifies. And lastly, the person making the statement, the declarant, had to be under the stress of the excitement caused by the event. And it's that fourth one that's the question mark. Ronrico didn't say Ashley hit him on purpose while he was lying in the driveway, paralyzed and bleeding. He actually said the opposite in the ambulance. He didn't say she hit him on purpose until after he was in the hospital, nearly two hours later. There is no rule that the utterance has to be within a certain time frame. The time elapsed between the startling event and the utterance is relevant, and it can be used by the judge in making the decision to let the statement in or exclude it. But it doesn't automatically kick the statement out just because a few hours passed. It's not a deciding factor like the four listed elements are. The state argued at trial and again during the appeal that this was an excited utterance because Ron Rico was still under the stress of the incident. He was in the ICU with all the beeping machines around, he was paralyzed, and he was experiencing unmanageable pain. Charlotte was the first family member he saw, and he immediately told her what happened. 
But on Ashley's side, they were asking if Ronrico was in pain and scared at the hospital, what was he feeling in the driveway? Or in the ambulance when he said Ashley backed into him unintentionally? The state really couldn't have it both ways. They wanted to say that the statement made over an hour and a half later was without reflective thought, but Ronrico's statement within 30 minutes was a calculated lie to keep Ashley out of trouble. Clearly, if the state believed Ronrico was able to come up with a lie while in the ambulance, they couldn't, with a straight face, call something at the hospital later on an excited utterance. I mean, they could, because they did. That, that was, in fact, their argument. But the appellate court could also call them out for this leap in logic, and they certainly did. They also pointed out that Ronrico asking Charlotte not to tell the police what he told her also indicated that he was thinking of the possible consequences. That's a sign of reflective thought, and that makes it not an excited utterance. So the court found that this was a trial error, and what Ronrico said to his mother was inadmissible hearsay. The jury never should have heard it. But that's only step one of an appeal. They proved an error was made. Now, did that error change the outcome of the trial? The appellate court had to look at all of the charges Ashley was convicted on separately to determine that. In regards to the vehicular homicide charge, this trial error did not affect it at all because vehicular homicide does not require intent. The jury simply had to find that Ashley was reckless and indifferent to the consequences of her actions. So even if she hit Ronrico unintentionally as she backed up, like she said, the jury still could have found that she was being reckless, tearing out of the driveway so quickly that she hit and dragged a man for 12 feet. So the appellate court said that conviction stood. So then they had to look at the murder charge and the felony assault convictions, which did require not intent to kill, but intent to cause harm. So the court had to consider how much weight the jury likely would have given the statement in light of the other evidence. And this is where I find appellate courts a little sticky. They have to decide what the jury would have ruled in a case where this evidence was not allowed in. Yet the jury has absolutely no role in this. They don't turn over their notes or their deliberation conversation or make statements to the court. The appellate judges basically put themselves in the role of a reasonable juror to make this determination. So it really is more a matter of theory. In this case, though, the court did address what they felt this specific jury would have done by saying that the verdict showed the jury did not take Charlotte's testimony about the statement into account much at all. The statement had been offered as evidence that Ashley intentionally ran Ronrico over, yet they found her not guilty on the charges related to intent to murder. 
the appellate court found that the stronger evidence was Mark's eyewitness testimony of seeing Ron Rico in front of the SUV and that that was enough to support the conviction, particularly the part where Mark said he could hear Ron Rico screaming. If Mark, who was inside, could hear that, Shirley Ashley could have heard it from the vehicle, yet she kept driving. Though the defense did try to undermine Mark's credibility, both at trial and in this appellate document, there was the body cam footage from that night. Mark was clearly upset. He told the police in that moment that Ashley had run his uncle over. And the recording picked up Mark refusing to get into a car with Ashley, showing that he was scared of her. Even if the jury never heard that hearsay statement, the jury would have still come to the same conclusion. So on this claim, the conviction was upheld. The second point on the appeal was that the verdict was against the weight of the evidence, though as you can tell by the court's ruling on the first point, this didn't go anywhere. Ashley did make some good points, though, about Mark's testimony. He had given different stories about what happened, and not all of his testimony was backed up by the evidence. For one thing, he said that Ronrico put his shirt and shoes on before going outside to the driveway. But Ronrico wasn't wearing either of these things when he was found, so Mark's recounting of the lead-up to the incident wasn't accurate. As for his depiction of what happened, it wasn't entirely in line with the blood evidence in the driveway. Earlier in the day, the Tahoe was parked, according to witnesses, pretty close to the garage door, not right up against it, probably about six feet away. There was no blood, hair, or skin that close to the garage, like you would expect if Ron Rico was in front of the car when he was hit. Also, it made sense that Ronrico would have been knocked back into the garage door or possibly even pinned up against it had Ashley pulled forward while he was standing there. But there was no evidence anything happened to that garage door. Mark had also testified that when Ashley arrived back at the house, she said, I told you, Ronrico, to her husband, and then yelled, who did this, for everyone else to hear. Except, no one else heard that. The neighbors who were gathering around did not hear her say either of these things. Ashley's argument was that the inconsistencies in Mark's story took away from his credibility. And without that, what did the state have? Even the responding officers and EMS techs wrote it up as an accident, and that's what Ron Rico told them happened. But in the end, the court said that any credibility issues in Mark's statement was really overcome by the other physical evidence. The damage to the Tahoe was in the front, not the back. The certified accident reconstructionist detective said that a man Ronrico's size would not have passed freely under the vehicle if he was hit from behind, meaning he never would have gotten to the front to do that damage to the bumper, unless that's where he started. And we really don't know where the vehicle was when this started. It's possible Ashley had backed away from the garage while Ronrico was outside, before she hit him. And if that happened, 
all of the other pieces of physical evidence fall into place. Honestly, in my opinion, even if Ron Rico was hit from behind, it doesn't automatically make it an accident. It's hard for me to believe that Ashley did not know she was dragging a large man who was screaming down the driveway. The appellate court found that the weight of the evidence did support the convictions, and this was upheld. Ashley Schutz will first become eligible for parole in August 2031, when she is 47 years old. Her and Ronrico's daughter, who was a baby when she lost her father to murder and her mother to prison, will be a teenager. And Ashley's older children will be adults. Parole for those sentenced to life in Ohio is at the discretion of the parole board. In the year 2020, only 15% of the prisoners who applied for parole had it granted. So barring a successful appeal, it is likely Ashley Schutz will serve far more than the 15-year minimum. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. 